Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Professor Michael Doyle. Michael is Professor at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Professor Doyle is perhaps best known as a prominent theorist of what is called democratic peace theory, and that's going to be the focus of today's episode. However, Michael also focuses in his work on issues concerning the responsibility to protect, peace building, and global power and the international order. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Michael. Jessica, I'm delighted to join you. As I noted, In today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about democratic peace theory and consider how it might apply in the context of the current war in Ukraine. But before we jump into that, I know that you have a forthcoming book called Cold Peace, Avoiding the New Cold War, which looks at shifts in global power and how these might shape the international order going forward, something that is also obviously very relevant as we're trying to understand Russia's place in coming decades or China's place in coming decades. So what is the focus of that book and when will it be released? Thank you. I'd be delighted to. The book Cold Peace makes two, I think, controversial uh, claims and seeks to support them with historical evidence and theoretical articulation. The first is that we, that is we, the world community, face a very uh, large and pressing threat, which is the reemergence of Cold War. There have been a number of Cold Wars in history. The most famous, if not notorious, was the Cold War between uh, the West and the East, between the U.S. and its allies and the Soviet Union and its allies which ranged from 1947, 1948 through 1990. So the first argument in the book is that we're in considerable danger of re-entering another Cold War. And this would be one that would be between the liberal capitalist democracies, again, the US and NATO and others at the forefront, and Russia and China and other nationalist corporatist autocracies. The causes will be complex, both international and domestic, but the end result could be the kind of a rivalry like the first Cold War. There's no reason to expect that it would escalate to a nuclear exchange unless horrible crimes and horrible statesmanship get in the way, but it could divide up the entire world and make it extremely difficult to solve the kind of global communal problems that we all face, most obvious of which is climate change. But there are many others, uh, you know, spreading diseases and extreme poverty and others would all be effectively almost taken off the agenda if this new Cold War emerged because of how costly it would be both politically and economically. So the first half of the argument is the bad news. The second half of the argument and why the book's called Cold Peace rather than just New Cold War is that none of the great powers are in any reasonable sense of that word so irrational that they do not appreciate the cost of a new Cold War. And we can envisage practical, if painful, compromises that would restore enough 
cooperation to the international order, that it would be possible to tackle uh, these pressing global communal challenges like climate change. Now, I know many will be skeptical of that claim after the Ukraine war and the escalation of tensions, but every war must end and so must the Ukraine war. We also need very active diplomacy to prevent the escalation of the conflict over Taiwan in East Asia and various rivalries in that part of the world from escalating. So on the one hand, the danger of a new Cold War. On the other hand, the possibility of difficult compromises that could restore the kind of not warm peace, but cold peace that would allow for cooperation to take place. If we keep working hard at it, that is, if I keep working hard at the at the copy edits, it'll be coming out in January or February of 2023 from W.W. Norton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's certainly a very timely book. Were you prompted, I'm curious, in writing that book, was your thinking very much shifted by Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine or had you already pretty much determined the thinking around the shape that you see the international order taking in coming years? And was this more just a confirmation that we're on that trajectory? The first draft of the book was finished in uh, in the middle of COVID in early 21. The second draft of the book was finished in uh, late 21. I sent it to the publisher for first reactions. So the book was done before the invasion of Ukraine. Frankly, like many, I was surprised by the invasion of Ukraine. I'd seen the turn that took place in Russia with the second coming to power of Mr. Putin in 2012 as one that had turned Russia into a much more, let's call it dangerous state. And so I was expecting a strong rivalry. So what happened in Syria was of no surprise to me. I expected that he would be deeply involved. I wasn't surprised by his success in propping up Mr. Assad and his success also earlier in Georgia and elsewhere. I did not expect that he would invade Ukraine. I thought he would coerce them, pressuring them to stay out of NATO and maybe to cede Crimea officially to them through various forms of cyber war and economic blockade. And I expected a beefing up of the Russian presidents in the Donbass, the eastern regions of Ukraine that they have dominated. I didn't expect a full-scale invasion. I thought he was more prudent than that, frankly. So I was surprised. I've had to do some rewriting in that last section where I talk about a deal that might be cut over Ukraine because it's become much, much more difficult to do in the aftermath of that invasion. Mm-hmm. Kudos to you for writing a book like that whilst it's sort of shifting sands under your feet. You mentioned a number of different conflicts in which Russia has been involved in what you were just saying. And certainly war is something that has been forever a part of the human experience and something that we certainly mm-hmm. examine a lot as international relations scholars or politics scholars. Can you outline in that regard the basic tenets of what we refer to as democratic peace theory or the liberal peace that you have investigated? Sure, I'm happy to do so. There are a number of different angles 
from which one could approach defining what the democratic peace theory, or what I prefer to call the liberal peace theory, uh, is articulating. It looks from relations among states conceived of as single unitary actors, and it goes from that to look inside the state to see how it's constructed. Rather than assuming that states are simple, unitary, and similar, it looks at internal differences that might shape external behavior. The key difference that it highlights is whether uh, and how a democracy can work to establish a different kind of foreign relations. And for many years, people thought democracies were inherently peaceful. That is that because people had to pay the cost of wars, because they were drafted into armies, had to pay taxes, they would be peaceful. But that was uh, only half the picture. Uh, it's better understood that democracies are only peaceful amongst themselves. And that became the heart of the liberal version of democratic peace theory. And, and the rationale for that is the following. Number one, democratic constitutional orders have the ability to introduce restraint. It comes from the necessity in many democratic governments to persuade different elements of the government. A governmental decision often rests upon a separation of powers among the legislature, an executive, a judiciary, all need to be brought on board. And when they're working properly, they introduce checks and balances, they enhance deliberation, they enhance uh, more cautious, better informed decision-making. So on the one hand, you get these constitutional factors and the other is representation. Unlike a dictatorial government, a monarchical government or others, the executive has to answer in some form or another to citizens. And the citizens uh, have a stake in avoiding unnecessary wars. That is wars that are harmful, that is that they fail or that they cost so much or that they're driven by purposes the public doesn't accept. And for those reasons, they'll resist because they have to be the soldiers, they have to be the taxpayers. So we have the constitutional element that produces enhanced deliberation, the representative element which defines the interest of the state in terms of citizens. And these two things come together to produce restraint. But it doesn't produce inherent peacefulness. That is, there are some circumstances in which a democratic public will feel that going to war is the right thing to do. And for example, it typically will occur in self-defense situations. They will fight rather than surrender. And so we see in Ukraine today that there's a heroic resistance being mounted that so far has deep popular sources of support. So in self-defense, there are some other circumstances in which the interest of the country is so vital that a war is necessary. If, if strangulation, economic strangulation were being threatened, then the citizens as a whole might feel that a war would be necessary. In other circumstances, they might be looking at a neighbor that's experiencing a genocide, for example, and the slaughter of ordinary civilians was so horrendous that the people might support an armed intervention to try to stop it. And so democracies, therefore, aren't inherently peaceful. They just exercise restraint. The restraint tends to produce peace when they deal with other democracies 
that are similarly constitutionally restrained, that aren't engaging in aggressive wars to glorify monarchs or rulers, and that respect basic human rights so that they're not engaging in genocides, and that also have commercial relations that are mutually profitable. And so with fellow liberal democracies, they will tend to be peaceful. With non-democracies or autocracies or monarchies, other factors enter in. They, those countries aren't restrained. They may engage in aggressive warfare for monarchical glory. And the democracies will be suspicious of them under the ideological rationale that if they won't allow their own citizens to shape domestic and foreign policy, how can we possibly trust them? That is, if they oppress their own citizens, why should we trust them? So we put all these things together and we get this, this tendency toward a separate peace, a relatively reliable peace among liberal democracies, but a continuing state of tension, sometimes leading to more defensive, but not always defensive in relations with non-democracies. And that's the liberal democratic peace that I and others also have worked on as a key characteristic of foreign policy and world politics, different from what our realist colleagues, you know, Kissingerian, balance of power theorists argue, who treat all countries as functionally the same. Mm -hmm. The ideas that I've been presenting over the years are inspired by a great German philosopher, Immanuel Kant. He wrote a study of perpetual peace way back in 1795, where he made similar kinds of arguments. Mm -hmm. It feeds back in to the argument in your book that you were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, where in some ways we might be talking about a separate peace, where there is tension between those different types of states. As you mentioned, also being surprised about Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, there were many reasons to be surprised that Putin would engage in a full-scale invasion. But I think one of the reasons that was often cited that analysts did not expect a full-scale invasion was an economic rationale that Russia had become integrated economically and interdependent economically to such an extent that the costs would really be too great on Putin's mm -hmm. regime and on Russia as a whole. And that was without even considering the very severe sanctions that have actually ended up being imposed, but just losing out from, for example, fracturing relations with European countries, et cetera. And indeed, there's been this kind of argument over recent decades that if we just increase trade, if we increase economic relations, that will actually bring us in to a kind of a political piece as well. It's interesting to me that that argument is often put forward when something like democratic peace theory actually doesn't suggest, like, yes, there is a piece that's about economic integration, but it doesn't suggest that that is sufficient. So why might that not be sufficient to avoid violent conflict? Yes, that's a, that's a very important point, both in this particular instance and more generally. I think one can make an argument that trade and investment and other sources of economic contact make war more costly because they're broken, and that's a factor of restraint. But as you say, it's not sufficient to establish a peace. Partly, it's dependent, at least in the liberal democratic model, having a security relationship of peace allows trade and investment to flourish, and that feeds back strengthening the peace, et cetera. 
But if you deeply distrust for political, geopolitical, and other reasons in another country, you will restrain trade to a certain extent, restrain investment, so it won't work as much. And it doesn't uh, have sufficient force to produce anything like the constraints that allow for a stable peace. Having uh, two countries that are both democratic, both constitutional, provide more restraints on the use of force than simply having trade relations or investments that could and are sometimes broken uh, when conflict emerges. But still, we see it as a factor. We're now moving to a world as the world divides up into this threatening new Cold War, where things called friend-shoring rather than offshoring investments will take place. Where before, capitalist countries were very happy to put their investments and their production arrangements in China or in Russia. There's now a concern that unless those investments are on friendly shores, they're not likely to be long-run secure or profitable. The Europeans are ripping up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Many investors are questioning how dependent they should be on production in China. We're seeing a, a different world whereby the world economy, rather than shaping the world politics, is being shaped by world politics into a more separated uh, economy. It's costly to create that kind of a world, but it, there's a tendency toward it emerging. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you probably talk about that in your book, but it makes me think that mm -hmm. if there is some kind of a separate piece, then it's likely that there would be different types of economic zones that would also operate within those divided blocks of countries. During the original Cold War, you know, there was Comic-Con in the East, and then the European Union, the North Atlantic trade relationships, the operation of the GATT, all of these things operating in the, the Western zone. So we had a divided world economy. And there is a danger that something like that could reemerge. And if it does, it'll be politically driven and economically costly for global prosperity. Mm -hmm. Finally, I guess just briefly, I'm actually going to ask you a really big question. But so we're sort of also grappling to try to understand the causes or the drivers of this conflict, which of course none of us really know. Perhaps, you know, Putin himself or other actors within the Russian domestic context. But thinking back to that idea of democratic peace theory and the fact that it may be less likely that an established democracy will go to war against another established democracy, but it's certainly not less likely that a democratic regime would engage or be engaged in a violent conflict against an authoritarian regime. So do you see that as sort of a key factor or a key patterning of what we're seeing here? Like how important is it the fact that Russia is an authoritarian regime and Ukraine, whilst it might not be a long established democracy, but was certainly an electoral democracy and quite far advanced also towards those civil and political rights that we associate with democratic regimes. I think it was an important factor in the, in the following way that Putin's regime had incentives for uh, cultivating geopolitical successes, often with military means. It added to not only his personal glory, but indirectly some elements of the Russian public, annoyed, angered, humiliated by the collapse of the Soviet empire, 
felt an identity with that, and it enhanced his political support in ways that he found very attractive. So that, that kind of nationalist fervor. And so he had great geopolitical successes by dismantling part of Georgia, and again, it provided imperial glory, by manipulating and running the show in Syria, by seizing Crimea in 2014, part of an imperial nationalist project that provided both legitimacy and popularity for him, the kind of popularity that he saw at threat at various times, wherein the Russian public, many of them, sought to change the kind of Putin-dominated regime that he, needless to say, relied upon. And there were various uh, demonstrations in Moscow in 2010, 2012, that demonstrated some of that uh, fragility. And so finding foreign glory to legitimize a domestic regime is something that's typical of authoritarian autocracies. And so that was a part of what was going on there. The other part of it, of course, was Ukraine. Its history has been very problematic, heavily dominated by oligarchs in the post-Soviet period, not that different in many respects from Russia itself. But in recent years, it took, take, it took significant steps toward uh, democracy, uh, not least with the election of Mr. Zelensky, who, who promises a much more democratic regime in, in the future. And so there is that difference that, that emerged uh, between the two. But it also is important that the, the democratic countries appreciate the value of sovereign equality. That is one of the drivers for the Europeans and for the Americans and the many others around the world that have supported Ukraine is the view that countries should be independent, be able to self-determine their own future. And even if Ukraine was far from a perfect democracy, it was by and large, especially with the election of, of Zelensky, reflecting Ukrainianism in a legitimate way, and it deserved not to be crushed. And so part of the legacy of the liberal order is respecting national self-determination. And that was certainly what was at, at stake right here. And it made comments like those of Madame von der Leyen, the, the EU president, that Ukraine is defending not just Ukraine, not just Eastern Europe, but all of Europe and the, and the principles that it stands for, a plausible read of what was going on there. And it helped produce a lot of solidarity for Ukraine uh, around the world, not unanimously, but uh, substantially, and especially among the more democratic countries that look to Ukraine uh, as having a right to self-determination. It, it is different from the, the, the real politique view that says the world is dominated by great powers and great powers are due deference. And when they are given deference, they rule the world in a way that, you know, at its best is stabilizing. Um, and at its worst, of course, is imperial. But the, the benefit of empire is that you get a, a top-down, more stable, global oligarchy to rule the world. And Mr. Kissinger at Davos this past year made similar kind of remarks urging Ukraine to concede Crimea and the Donbass and to follow the Russian lead on foreign policy, because it was a small country. Russia is a great country. A stable, happy Russia will make for a more peaceful world. And that, that's uh, not 
inherently false, but what it misses is the modern world of political equality, where countries aspire to independence, even small countries, and demand respect for it. If we followed Mr. Kissinger's logic, the United States would be perfectly legitimate in invading Cuba tomorrow in order to stabilize the Caribbean in ways that we found more favorable. And I think that's an unfortunate way to run the world. And what's good for Ukraine uh, in the Kissinger model would be therefore good for the United States and Cuba. And that would be a much more dangerous world that we would be living in, in the same way if China chose, for example, to seize the Philippines or the Solomon Islands or, or crush the effective independence, not legal independence, but effective independence of Taiwan. That would be a world ruled by the great powers. It might be more stable if each of the great powers conceded regional hegemony to the others. But it, uh, it would be a world of uh, real oppression for most countries in the world, a world in which human rights meant very little, and a world of uh, great hierarchy uh, rather than equality. Mm -hmm. That's right. And certainly any Ukrainians that I've spoken to were not very impressed with Kissinger's remarks, which also seems important to take into account. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate you being on the podcast today and sharing your insights. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Jessica, for your questions. I'm delighted that you're, you know, bringing the, your listeners uh, even some abstract international relations theory. <laughs> So thank you so much. That's right. <laughs> Trying to bridge the gap between the conceptual world and the applied world. That's a great idea. All the best and thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.